I found a letter that he had written to Dr. Charles Adams at Hartford Memorial, where he talked about, you know, I'm sitting in this 25th floor office with this view of downtown Detroit. I have a story I'm supposed to finish, but I don't even have the desire to do that anymore. All I have is the desire to serve God. This is Journalists Advancing Ministry, a new multimedia podcast about media professionals called to kingdom work. We explore their path to ministry from media and ask the question, are journalists particularly suited for this? I'm your host, Yvette Walker, a former full-time journalist. Join me as we talk to reporters, editors, and other journalists who've answered the call of ministry. Angelo Henderson was a larger-than-life award-winning writer who won the Pulitzer Prize, but he loved God more. Today, I talked to his widow, Felicia Henderson, and she shares the behind-the-scenes details of how and why Angelo moved from media to the ministry. I want to thank Felicia for graciously letting us have a peek into her family life with Angelo and their son, Grant, as they all walked his journey to leave journalism. Here's Felicia. Felicia, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about your dear, dear husband, Angelo Henderson. Thank you. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you so much. I can't say that enough for you asking me to talk about him, his life, and his uh, journey from journalism to, as he would call, journalism to Jesus. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yes, journalism to Jesus. Well, so we've known each other for a while, and um, Angelo... In my mind, I know him as as much as journalist, as minister, just because I'm kind of focused more on the ministry now. But he was such an incredible journalist. I do obviously want to talk about that path to ministry that he took. Uh, if you can share perhaps why that happened, uh, what his what his meaning was. As you know, on the show, we are taking a look at people who are, were involved in the media in some form or fashion and who made their way to ministry. I feel like I am beginning to see that. And maybe it's maybe it's kind of like the funny thing, like when you're pregnant, then you see all pregnant women. Maybe it's something like that. But I definitely see people move, making that move. I think it's really interesting. And because I've had that to some degree in my own life, uh, love, love hearing the stories. And of course, I immediately thought of Angelo because uh, he's such an amazing journalist. Um, we miss him. We miss him so much. So if you could tell me a little bit about um, about his, first of all, his faith walk. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to talk to people about their faith walk. And, um, and, and, and before you even do that, share with my audience uh, when we lost him. Okay. Um, I'll talk a little bit about his faith walk. Um, his parents were very active in the church, his mother in particular, and she took him to uh, choir rehearsals and Bible study and dawn Bible study. I had never even heard of dawn Bible study till I started <laughs> dating him, and they took me to dawn Bible study. And it was but truly at dawn, right? It truly was at dawn. I was like, who goes <laughs> to Bible study at six o'clock in the morning? But uh, you know, so religion and uh, played a, a very important part in his life. And upbringing, and uh, that just continued uh, into adulthood. And when we dated, and we got married, and um, you know, he was always active in the church. 
Um, when we moved to Detroit, uh, we joined Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, uh, joined the choir, became involved in the church. So that was just a very natural um, uh, part of Angelo's life. And um, when you talk about people transitioning from journalism to Jesus, uh, I noticed it too, uh, considering the, the news organization we worked for previously, there were four people who left the business to go into the ministry. And I thought, how odd is that? Um, but then, um, and, and Angelo's journey into the ministry was really purely accidental uh, because I already said he was involved in, in the church. Uh, but I think he was, uh, he was 35 or 36 when he got a call uh, at the end of the year saying they would like him to become a deacon. And he was like, wow, you know, my, I remember a member of our family said, oh, you're too young to be a deacon. That That's supposed to be when you're older and, you know, you've lived more life. And so he thought it through and decided to um, become a deacon. So that was a um, a nine-month process of, of learning. And really, it was kind of like really preparing him for the ministry because of all the duties that deacons perform, um, you know, serving baptism and um, and and off, and sometimes even filling in when there's not a pastor to preach. So that was one of the things he had to um, prepare for when he became a deacon. He had to deliver his, his basically his trial sermon. So that was in 1998. So let's put this on a timeline for a second. Mm -hmm. So when did you guys get married? Oh, okay. We got married in 1989. Okay. Okay. And so I know I met both of you at the Detroit News uh, where we both worked. And that was in the 90s, in the, I'm trying to remember now, the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so around that same time, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure when he got there, but I I want to say I got there in 80, 88, 89. And he, uh, you were there before him. Okay. And then, because I remember him telling me he talked, he met this woman who was also a Delta and she was getting <laughs> married too. And you two were ch- sharing the stories of the wedding journey. And so he oh. got there in May of 89. And then I came, we got married in October of 89. And then I started in November, like November 5th of 89. Mm-hmm. And so his deacon road was a few years after that. Mm-hmm. So that okay. was 89, 90. So then eight years later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. When you talk about someone who needs to be a great communicator, who needs to, as you said, he had to give a almost audition, a, a, a sermon, right? For mm-hmm. be able to go into um, and to be a deacon. Angela was a great communicator. Um, not only in the written word, which is how he primarily, you know, practiced his craft. But I mean, he just had such a wonderful personality. Everyone knows him for his personality. Everyone knows him as being able to command a room. Did mm-hmm. that serve him in this in this role? It did, uh, but he was not comfortable in the beginning. It took a while for him to really feel comfortable in that position. 
uh, and really feel like, what is my preaching style? How am I supposed to deliver? And I remember my mother telling him, just be you. Like you said, he you can command a room, you know how to get people's attention. And I think once he heard that, he realized that he could be comfortable being himself uh, in delivering sermons. Mm. And I tell you, one of the um, nice things about, um, and you asked me when he died, and it was in 2014, a year later, um, I had just boxed, I mean, his his papers, his sermons, they they were everywhere in his office. And I remember I spent a few months organizing his sermons and then reading his sermons. And they were just like um, the stories he wrote. The writing was so well-crafted. And you never think about that Sometimes you'll hear a phrase when a, a, a minister delivers it and you say, oh, wow, that was catchy. Uh, but when I read through him, I was like, wow. And I remember him saying that everything, every skill he ever had learned, every skill he'd ever learned, he used it in the ministry. Mm. So I thought about that, about his his um, his reporting and his writing style when it came to newspapers, really transferred over to you know, preparing and writing sermons. And uh, he used, he was really good at using different techniques to tell, um, to deliver messages. He would often use uh, recordings and he'd play different songs to deliver a point he was trying to make. Uh, But he always tried to make uh, his sermons very engaging and, and pull the audience in. Mm, so wonderful. And I know what you mean when you're when you're listening to a sermon, there's a couple of things that's happening. Obviously, it's touching you spiritually or it hopefully it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also making sense to you and it's also teaching you things. And so all of that together, and I and when you just said he took everything that he knew and put it into that, that makes perfect sense because that's really the best of the best sermons, I think. So let's we're talking about his skills. One thing that I have learned when I've talked to a few people is that they recognize that they have been given gifts, gifts of communication, various gifts that they wanted to use in the service of the Lord. In this case, we're talking gifts of communication, writing, um, sometimes even research slash reporting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did he ever talk about how that was important uh, to use those gifts in in God's in God's glory. Uh, he didn't uh, talk about it a lot, but I saw it. Um, he would never let me in on uh, his pr- sermon preparation. It was always, "Oh, you'll hear it on Sunday." <laughs> oh, but, really? You did not see it. You didn't read it ahead. <laughs> Now, I was his first read editor as a journalist, right? Anytime he wrote a story, I read that first. But when it came to the sermons, no. (laughs) He kept that to himself. But I know he spent as much time reporting and, uh, look, reporting, researching like he was reporting a story, right? And there's so many books. Oh, my gosh. There's so many books in um, our lower level where he worked. Uh, books that he used as research for for sermons. It's <laughs> it was it's really ridiculous. It's probably like a thousand books. 
down there. Uh, but yeah, he 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 approached the sermon much like he did a story. Mm. Okay, so going back, he is he's a great journalist. Um, I definitely want to talk about the Pulitzer, but before mm-hmm. we get there, um, you're going to church. You are playing a large role in the church, which I also see in other cases. And um, he's getting, you know, maybe drawn in isn't the right word, but there's a connection. They ask him to become a deacon. He has to think about it, but then he says yes. How long of a process was that? Uh, That was nine months, 10 months, 10 months. Was it kind of traditional classes or workshops or things like that? Yeah, I I recall they would have um they would have homework during the week. They would meet on Saturdays every Saturday uh through October. I want to say maybe by end of September and then they would go through meetings with uh with Dr. Adams and other ministers on staff to make sure that they were fully prepared. And, um, you know, knowledgeable in the role and the duties. And uh, and then they were preparing for their, their sermon. Um, and it was always on the second Sunday in October. And that particular year in 98 was his birthday, I believe. I believe if, if it wasn't on his birthday, his birthday was the next day. Mm, well, so that wonderful. made it even more special. Absolutely. And what what was the name of the church? Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. Baptist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So he is playing this role, but still in the newsroom at that point, correct? That's okay. correct. He, by that time, he was at the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. And so you and I, we mentioned this was at the Detroit News where, where we met. He worked there for several years uh, and then went on to work at the Wall Street Journal, which, and I remember that that was such a special we were all so proud. We were all so proud of him making that move to, and not just to the Wall Street Journal, but he was the bureau chief. He and, ultimately became deputy bureau chief. Mm-hmm. And, and so at that point, he was deputy bureau chief when he, he was um, ordained as a deacon. Okay. You remember what year that was? That was 98. Okay, 98, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I, I wanted to say what year the minister when he actually became minister and left. Um, so let's talk about the Pulitzer. Tell us a little bit about what he won that Pulitzer for and what year that was. Okay, so let me think. Um, 98. I want to say, I want to say um, the year he started working on that story would have been in 97. And I think it was published ironically, in 98. Uh, The interesting thing about that Pulitzer story, he had written a story for the Detroit News on uh, the struggle that business owners in the Redford District in Detroit were were having with crime. And uh, he talked to several business owners. One was a pharmacist. And so fast forward Five years later, uh, we see on television that there had been a pharmacist who had been robbed, an attempted robbery, in the Redford District, and he killed the robber, the pharmacist. And Angelo said, I think that's the same man that I 
interviewed for um, Crime at the Crossroads. That was the name of the project. And he called him that Monday. And surprisingly, the pharmacist answered the phone. He really didn't expect him to answer the phone. He's like, you are back at work. You just killed somebody. And he said, well, this is my business. So mm. he told him he um, wanted him. He knew that that was going to be a difficult period for him. He said, but he was really interested in telling his story. And so, you know, to me, it was like, oh, my God, I really want to I want to interview this guy and see what what is it like to kill somebody? You know, <laughs> kind of a quirky um sense of stories, but they were always interesting, right? And it was the kind of stories that people would want to read. And, um, and, and I missed a step in there, most importantly. Uh, we saw this on the news on a Saturday night, and the next day we got the Detroit News delivered to our doorstep. And he looked in the paper, and it said, you know, pharmacist Dennis Grill was um, a, a robbery, attempted robbery, and he killed the burglar. So he said, oh, my God, that is the same guy. So anyway, uh, he would call him like once a month uh, to check in on him. So after probably eight months, he wrote the first draft of the story. His editor in New York said, oh, great story. But the story really just focused on the pharmacist and what his experience was like. And, you know, his editor said, well, let's tell the story of the man he healed. Let's really dig into his story. And he was from Chicago and he lived in a very um, dangerous section of Chicago. And he sent emails um, to his mother and they, not emails, I'm sorry, letters, certified letters. I think he sent a FedEx and she just was not responding. So his editor said, you're gonna have to go there. And Angela's like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So (laughs) as he would tell, you know, if he were telling this story, he would say if he was doing a story in a dangerous neighborhood, he would always take someone who was familiar with the neighborhood, who was carrying a a weapon on him legally, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But he knew he needed to have some backup with him. So that was actually the case when he was reporting that story in the Redford District. He had one of his good friends. So he's like, okay, I'm going to Chicago. Who can I have do this? And, um, you know, Angela was a graduate of the Cherub program out of Northwestern University. And um, that's a high school program for budding journalists. So he had he maintained a friendship with a, a woman who was in the program with him. She was um, a journalist in uh, Milwaukee, uh, but her husband was from Chicago. So he came in, you know, knew this community well, and he was that, you know, his sidekick, if you will. Uh, they went to the uh, apartment interviewed the mom and um, his brother just happened to come in. His brother had just been released from prison and he just started the tell, started telling the story of his brother. And Angelo's just writing these notes, taking them furiously. And interestingly, the judges said that part of the story uh, read like um, Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway. Wow. I was like, oh my God, this is just 
it can't get any better than that, right? So, um, and you know, he never used uh, recording devices, so he's just taking notes. And his friend said, well, when there's, I give you this signal, that means you've got to wrap it up quick because something's about to go down. <laughs> and so his friend, the brother leaves, goes in a room, and shortly after that, his friend gives the signal. And so they wrap up the interview, they get out of there. I find out years later that when they were leaving, they, you know, ran to their cars. And as they're drive, quickly driving off, the brother is in the middle of the street firing a gun at them. What? I couldn't believe it. I He was... <laughs> Telling this at a journalism conference, and I'm sitting in the back like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was crazy. So that story was published, I want to say early 98. And we'll put a we'll put a link in the in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And you know, he um ultimately sent a letter of thanks to um his mother. Um, send her the story. And then uh, a little funny side note, the editors, they, I guess the reaction, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, how did people tell you they like stories? Because we didn't have internet then, didn't have email. But anyway, they, the response reaction was good, great from the public. And uh, the editor said, oh, we should have you go back and tell the story of the brother. And he was like, no. <laughs> no, thank you. No, that will not be happening. Oh, wow. I have never heard, I haven't heard that story, of course, but I also have not heard this behind the scenes story of, of, of how he wrote that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. It's just so interesting. Um, and, you know, we are, we, we are a little bit of, uh, of news nerds and, I, you know, people watching this may not, may not necessarily care about that, but, but I just want to point out that I think so much of that plays a role at least i'm going to i'm going to believe that it plays a role in in all the kind of decisions that we make and i think potentially played a role in in how he wanted to to really spend the rest of his life and that was in service to god i mean i don't know did he talk about well, you didn't hear that story until at the journalism conference but i can't help but wonder was he praying was he happy god was with him i mean <laughs> Oh yeah. Knowing him, I yeah, he, he was. And it's it's interesting because that was even a faith walk. That story was nominated as a wild card. So it wasn't even placed in a particular category. It was a wild card entry. And so the judges liked it and they put it in the feature writing category. So the fact that it even won, right? And yeah. it was a wild card. And um, it's so interesting because 19 and then 20 years later, I became a Pulitzer judge myself in the feature writing category. And I got to see who the judges were in that category. And, um, you know, I got to speak with uh, one of the judges and he said, still resonates as one of the best stories I've ever read. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's really nice that it's, you know, that people still hold that story up as, you know, the bar when it comes to writing. 
I know you're so proud. Oh, amazing. I'm so proud because he had had, you know, we've all, we've been in this business long enough to know that there are editors who just take pleasure in um, dimming or, you know, thwarting your success. And he, his very first editor told him he needed to reconsider being a reporter. And then, you know, Two editors after that told him, you know, you're the worst journalist in the department. So for me, as the wife, the supporter, I'm praying, Lord, I know I'm not supposed to be praying for this Pulitzer, but I would love it if you could just let him win this prize so people, he can show the naysayers. He has the talent and he's recognized as one of the industry's best, right? So, you know, there was a lot of, there was, and you know, he's like, I'm not praying for a Pulitzer, but he's kind of like, okay, God, if you want to, you know, throw rain down some blessings, you know, go ahead. <laughs> wow. All right. So that, I did the praying for him, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the story came out in 98. He would have probably received that Pulitzer a year later. Yes. Okay. So, and so in, in 99, so when, so that's, I mean, some people might say that's the pinnacle. Where can you go from there? Some mm-hmm. people might argue. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm not saying that that had anything to do with the decision to, to leave full-time journalism and become a minister. But, but talk a little bit about that path. When did that happen? What year? And what was going on around that time? Well, I have to start in 99, uh, right after you won the Pulitzer. And I believe... And I'm not sure how these conversations went. I just knew that was April. By August, September, he's telling me he signed up for for a class in the urban ministry program at Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) When do you have time to do that? Right? Mm -hmm. And um, so there were uh, two friends at Hartford. Uh, One was uh, a woman who became a deacon with them at the same time. They all decided, let's go through this program. We can help each other. We can support each other. And it was a two-year program. And one thing I knew about Angelo, when Angelo was always doing something different, it's like, okay, so what are you doing this time? Okay, so now you're going to theology school. Okay, let's see how this works. And Interestingly, uh, after he died, I was going through, um, you know, actually clearing out um, just boxes that he had had from church. And um, and I found these notebooks and they were like bound notebooks. And I had them in a pile to, to, to throw away. And I went downstairs in his office and it was just like the spirit was saying, retrieve those books. And I did. And I, I opened one. And what, one of those books was his journal that for, for the first class he took in this urban ministry program. Mm. And the first thing it said, something about, I just told my wife, I decided to go get enrolled in this program. And she looks at me like, how in the world are you going to have time to do this? And he says, I'm asking myself that too. <laughs> and so <laughs> as I kept reading through the journal, it just gave me a little more insight um, 
as to how the program was starting to to shape him. And then I found a letter that he had written to Dr. Charles Adams at Hartford Memorial. This was probably a year later in 2000, where he talked about, you know, I'm sitting in this 25th floor office with this view of downtown Detroit. I have a story I'm supposed to finish, but I don't even have the desire to do that anymore. All I have is the desire to serve God. And there's the call. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Because he never, ever really shared that moment with me. But I would say, yeah, it was then in around 2000. So he graduated in 2002. So that would have been three years. And at that point, he didn't know uh, what capacity in ministry he wanted to serve. He knew he did not want to be the past, a, past, a pastor of a church, so he thought. And um, <laughs> he just knew he wanted to serve God, right? So we were still at Hartford at that point. And I think at that time, because we had been working as um, teachers in um, children's church, and we had fourth graders, and that would be once, I think that was once a month, maybe twice a month. And then I think he was ministering to, to the teenagers. Um, that would have been 2002. And so going into 2003, the last professor he had in seminary, uh, he would come home and tell me that uh, they got along really well. He was super cool. He really enjoyed his classes. So by May of 2003, he called him and said, I'd like you to join. Uh, I have an opening on my ministerial staff. Uh, and this was Hope United Methodist Church in Southfield. And he said, I'd love for you to be a member of my, my team. And I remember him calling me at work. And I said, does that mean we have to leave Hartford? What? 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 <laughs> I was like, oh, man, are you serious? And um, so he mulled that over for about four or five months. We didn't even talk. He didn't talk about it. And so he got a call from the same pastor. I know it was like September of 2003. And they had a friends and family day at the church. And my mother just happened to be in town. So I said, uh, well, if you take mom, take mom with you. And I clearly we had talked about this at some point because I, I I just remember saying, take mom with you, because if you get her to sign off on this, then we should be good. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to hear this. Why did he quit his job? To, you know, and my mother loved the church. She was like, oh, my God, everybody's so warm and friendly. And at that point, that's when he really he was working. The crazy thing is he was working on this year long project at the same time. At this point, he has left the Detroit News and he's back. I mean, he has left the Wall Street Journal. He's back at the Detroit News. He's working on this uh, year long project. And so that was October, November. Uh, he turns in the first draft. For whatever reason, the executive editor says, I'm no longer interested in the project. I've killed it. Yeah. Whoa. And, and then the crazy thing was because here at this point, I'm a senior manager. And they tell me, well, don't tell him yet because we haven't done. I'm like, 
you want me to go home and not tell him what's happening with the story? So long story short, they finally tell him. And he says, that's fine. I'm quitting and I'm going to the ministry. And so that's what that's what he did. He decided to take that that leap. And it, it, it was interesting how God had to work on me because I, I had, I was very angry. I carried a lot of anger because I sat next to the editor every day and I thought, okay, so God, you really are working on me too, because, you know, it was just an interesting journey for, for me. But then around that first, that one year mark, I said to Angela, I said, you know what? This is clearly how God had this happen. Cause it, cause what I learned in that year, other things were happening. And in my experience, when God says, no, it's like that door closes. It's so abrupt. It's like, what? what? Ah. It's one of those things that just really makes you pivot and go in the direction he wants you to go. So, so many other things were happening like that in 2004 that I said, Angela, I think that was by design. And he said, you know, I never thought of it that way. But if the story, this project had done really well, had won prizes, it would have been harder for me to leave the ministry or leave journalism for the ministry. So that's how that that came about. Great story. I think there's such an important message in there to really anyone listening that when God shuts doors, I mean, there's reasons behind that. And it just will not make sense to any of us. And I also want to point out to anyone listening, you know, who really doesn't know much about journalism or newsrooms, it it is not that common for husbands and, well, I mean, I don't know, for husbands and wives to, it is common for husbands and wives to work in, in the same newsrooms, but not for one to have as much connection to the work of another that that you were able to have. And so that was, I agree with you when you said he was working on you. That must have been a very, very stressful time to know this information and under, and trying to figure out what does it mean and how is it going to work on our lives together? Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it was around that time that he he coined this phrase, journalism would drive you to Jesus. <laughs> Amen to that. Oh, my gosh. I thought that was so clever, particularly coming out of the Motor City. Journalism will drive you to Jesus. Oh, my. But that's, I think that's, that's a headline what... right there. That's a headline. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of different, there's stressors that are inherent in the job. And sometimes you don't have the right people in those positions of authority who make decisions and decisions that are made sometimes are are, are so arbitrary that uh, frustrate it causes causes frustration for people and and forces them to make choices about whether they want to stay in the business or not. But I think um, to the point you were stating earlier about why people tend to go to them into the ministry from journalism. When you think about uh, why people choose journalism as a career, right? There's usually, we feel like we want to save the world. There's some part of us that wants to really make our readers feel like, 
or people in the community feel like their stories are told and making sure their stories are being told, right? Because they've been so long ignored, uh, particularly in, in communities of color. Uh, but I just think in general, journalists want to save the world and, and we have, you know, personal missions and reasons why we got in this business. And I think that's probably that thread that moves people into ministry in terms of helping people and wanting to be of service in the same way that journalists are to are in service to community. That makes complete sense to me. I think sometimes it doesn't make sense to other people because there's this love-hate relationship with the media. And mm-hmm. so many people, especially today, um, believe the media is is as far away from Jesus as you <laughs> as you can get, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and not thinking that the people who are right. practicing journalism have this within them that really there there's a i think that there's a a connection to to faith i mean when we're doing our work i mean, we have, i haven't talked about this with anybody yet but i mean i feel like when we're doing our work we're we're doing a lot on faith would you say oh absolutely absolutely and you know when you're thinking about you're hoping you get that source you know you've met you're making these connections with sources you're hoping that they will call you back so you can tell the story i mean that is that's faith Right. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I work now with uh, journalism organizations and, and I'm coaching them on how to uh, talk with members of the community, community how to um, how to be present in a community, a community that hasn't seen those people behind the scenes making, you know, creating stories. So they understand that these are people who care about the community, but for so long, you know, journalists have been inside the newsroom and not in the communities that they cover. So it's very easy to villainize as you were saying earlier, to villainize journalists and per, and perceive that, you know, we're the enemy, but that's not the case. And, you know, for most of us, we really care about the communities, but the, we haven't been visible. Yeah, no, you're right about that. So let's talk about the last um, titles that he held in ministry. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he, he ultimately took the job in Southfield. Uh, which is which is a um, for anyone who doesn't know, which is a, a, sub- a suburban city to Detroit. And um, where did he stay there? Where did he go after that? Okay, he was at Hope United Methodist Church from 2004 to 2011, and his title was um, associate pastor of. Worship, Vision, and Emerging Ministries. And so he was, I mean, he was over 40 ministries during those seven years and uh, was very beloved by members of the church. Um, Still, I was talking with someone today on this this 5K walk, and she said, you know, he was our brother. He was all of our our brother, you know. Um, So then he was called to become um, an assistant pastor at Triumph Church. 
and Triumph Church is is based in Detroit, uh, but it's uh, one of the nation's fastest growing uh, churches. There are seven different campuses, and we call that the Spiritual Beltway uh, because our pastor is going from these seven churches all, every Sunday, every Saturday, well, not Saturday, but every Sunday for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so he joined uh, Triumph Church in 2011 and was there to his death in 2014. And he was uh, director of outreach. Mm. So he was really responsible for looking at ways that uh, community, uh, the church could connect with community resources. And one of the things he was so proud of, uh, the home church is in Southwest Detroit. And um, he connected with Forgotten Harvest Uh, So every fourth Saturday of the month, they had the food giveaway. And, you know, because he had such a magnetic personality, there were people, he was able to get people from the church, people from Hope Church, (laughs) any and all friends to volunteer every, every uh, Saturday. So, and he loved that. Mm. So uh, I don't think we can really finish talking about this without talking about family. And uh, you mentioned that you really only, when you read his journal, understood, you know, really how he was wrestling with it. But, mm-hmm. but for you, for you, um, I don't know if you ever, cons- if you were ever considered first lady anywhere or anything like that, but how did this, how did this play for you? Well, it's interesting. People tried to pull me into that um, at, at Hope Church. And there were other pastors who were married. And I'd say, look, I'm the fourth wife, fourth lady. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is a first lady. I am not trying to take that role. Uh, but they would try to um uh pull me into events or or different in different ways in terms that would be serving like you know mm-hmm. and he would have to remind them that no her job is at the Detroit News and mother to Grant and taking care of him while I'm here with you all to eight, nine, and ten o'clock at night every night. <laughs> <laughs> so um I really, I really, I I served where I could, but I was really more support. uh, And especially because, um, you know, his life, he probably, he worked harder at the church than he did in journalism. uh, Because there were, I mean, many nights where his average time getting home was, you know, between nine and 10. And then when he went to Triumph Church, that the church was doing so much in the community. It was always 11, between 11 and midnight. So, and that was during Grant's formative years from, he was in, I think he was in the fourth grade when he started. And until, and when he died, Grant was a sophomore in college. So I'm glad you brought up Grant. I was going to ask you if it was okay to talk about Grant because, again, we couldn't finish this conversation without talking about the two most important family people in his life who were, who were family. Um, he has he has become such an amazing young man, and I love Thank when you. I see any any you know social media posts about him. Um, but because he and, and I imagine this might be true with any father son relationship when the father's in the church. 
But because Angelo was so magnetic and in, 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 in all of that, um, I wonder, do you feel like Grant ever felt like he might follow daddy's footsteps into the ministry at some point? And maybe not now, I don't think, but did you ever see that happening? I've gotten glimpses of that. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, Angelo never thought he would ever be in the ministry. If you had said this to him when we got married and he was 27, he would, oh no, right? Um, and you know, um, it's really interesting. I found that, you know, those who are truly called are the ones who fight it. Yes. They fight yes. their calling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something that's really planted there. And I think there's enough that he learned through not only being in his presence, but through osmosis and just what he poured into him um, that has really um, made a difference. And I, I, it was something that Grant said to me um, last year, and I thought, I guess I better hold on to these robes because you never know. Now, if he he hears this, he'll be like, "Are you what? No." <laughs> but you never know uh, what God has in store for you, right? So that's why you have to always be open. But it is, um, it's it's beautiful that he understands the word. Um, he walks in the word. Uh, so he has his own personal journey. Uh, so it's very nice to sit back and watch that. Mm. And so um, so we lost him in 2014. For you and for Grant, um, how has this, and, and it probably t- took you some time to even kind of reflect on it, but how how did this journey take you to a place, and I guess where I'm asking, take you to a place of, I don't know, peace? Um, You know, that, it was really right away, oddly enough. I mean, I was devastated. Of course. Because, you know, my best friend, um, 28 years, it just felt like my arm was cut off. But at the same time, I know God makes no mistakes. I also know that, you know, our time is already predetermined. And so when you go through those different stages of grief, anger was never there for me. Mm. That's beautiful. So I just said, God's in control. So now I, I just said, well, and God, you've got to guide me through it. Now, interestingly, um, I felt his presence right away, Angelo's presence right away. Not, you know, like two days later, just different things were happening. And I was like, wow, I have never experienced that with anyone uh, close to me who's died. But that's when I began began to understand when they say, oh, they're with us in spirit. Yeah, that that really rang true. It rings true. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing this today. It's a story that I just don't think has been told before. And um, I think it's an important one. And I and I hope that 
I hope I really hope that this series answers some questions, if not from journalists who are thinking about it, but just recognizing that, you know, God can can touch someone and take them in a completely different direction. And I know we've seen it in lots of different places, but I but I'm seeing it among, you know, in, in this industry. And I just personally think it's fascinating. And this was I, I think this is going to be a very special, special installment in journalists thank advancing you. ministry. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for allowing me to share uh, our story, Angelo's story and his journey. <laughs>